Okay, as you make your way back to your seats, you can turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we looked at verses 25 to uh, 45 last week. We're just going to shrink it down to 25 to 35 this week. And I didn't plan it, but I was saying to someone that's just been, it's interesting as you go through God's Word, and I just kind of move through books, and then sometimes pause for special topics or um, seasonal things. I didn't plan this, but I realized that today's message uh, on singleness lands on the week of Valentine's Day, which is Wednesday. Uh, but I think that's actually really, really helpful and appropriate and good actually for all of us. Um, but I'm sensitized to the fact that for those who are unmarried and single, uh, the month of February and the big Valentine's commercial push can really be a time that can make you feel um, like being single is like the worst circumstance you can find yourself in. Um, all things love and romance and sex are sort of brought to the forefront even more than usual. And I think because of that, uh, loneliness and longing are really amplified. And a lot of people feel that um, they feel that those emotions are unavoidable and inconsolable. So for singles, Valentine's Day um, can be just as or more difficult than sometimes the Christmas holidays. If you've experienced grief around those, you just sort of white knuckle it and help to get through. And it's actually in these contexts of discomfort and pain that discovering God's word for those who are single uh, is really, really important. And it's important to recognize that God, God's word gives us hope beyond just, oh, you'll find true love or another true love one day. So I hope today offers a word of encouragement and hope and also empowerment to those who find themselves in a season of singleness, um, for those who find themselves feeling limited and isolated, maybe even embarrassed or shameful, and for whom singleness feels maybe even unbearable. So I want to look at this passage of Scripture, and then I want to highlight um, kind of three things. So this is Paul writing. He's been writing to people in different um, you know, widows and then people who are married, whether you're married to believers or not believers. And his advice has been the same. Stay where you are. Where you are is an opportunity to bless and serve God. And now he says, now about virgins, meaning those who have never been married. So he has addressed those widows and widowers who have been married, who now find themselves single. Now he's saying to those who have never been married. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Then don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed by them. For this world in its present form is passing away. And I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair, and her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and soul, 
but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So we talked a little bit last week about two broad views of singleness, and they've different categories have been used, but um, Timothy Keller talks about like the ancient slash traditional view and the contemporary view. And the ancient or traditional view of singleness is that if you're single, you're a drag on society and you're an embarrassment to yourself. And so traditional or ancient cultures put a huge amount of social pressure on people who were single getting married or remarried. Because again, that's how you build an empire. That's how you build the economy. That's how we have more children. That's how we flourish as a nation. And it was a huge social stigma to remain unmarried. A man or a woman who's single, and even when we talked about last week from a Jewish perspective, at the age of 20, is no real man. They haven't graduated to adulthood. They're not legitimate. This view is very community-centric. It says single people are a burden on the broader community. And everything should be about strengthening the community. And so people who are single are drained because they're not helping to build into the social infrastructure. Now the other view is the contemporary view, which sees singleness as a path to freedom. Right? You're unbound by the constraints of first marriage and then family. And so singleness is actually a path that increasingly is held out as a way to maximize your own personal fulfillment. Right? You're enough. Don't give up your independence and autonomy. Leverage your singleness to construct a world that fulfills you. You live your best life. And organize your relationships around what matters most to you. And this includes also your sexual world. You organize your sexual world around what works for you through kind of like semi-committed relationships um, or even non-committed sexual encounters. And relationship in life becomes a strategic pattern of extraction so that you pull in whatever richness you want to be looking for or that you believe is going to actually fulfill you. And as you can see, this is kind of like a 180 from the traditional view. This is very individualistic-centered. It doesn't place the community at the center of being singleness as a source of shame. It places the individual at the center of singleness. And it can actually be a source of um, pride. And it's seen as a source of empowerment. Because relationships, especially high-commitment ones, like getting married and having children, um, we rightly discern those impose a lot of limitations. And we live in a world that is increasingly suspicious around limitations. Because limitations, sort of in the cultural uh, waters, feels like oppression. So we want to be free, live how we want, to be who we want, and to structure our life around ourselves. And therefore, for some people, singleness becomes the ultimate signaler of personal empowerment. Now, many people assume Christianity views singleness solely through the individual, sorry, through the uh, traditional lens. And many churches and Christians do. If you've, uh, some church cultures that some of you have been exposed to, 
sent a message, sometimes from the front, sometimes it was just in the culture, the way that people interacted with you, that as long as you were single at a certain age, people were kind of waiting for you to find someone and then you could get on with your life. But that's not actually how the Bible frames singleness. The Bible doesn't frame singleness as an inherent deficit or problem necessarily to be solved. Now, many people also assume that Christianity condemns in all its forms the contemporary view because of its self-centeredness. But it's not quite that simple either. So when it comes to a theology of singleness, right, how should Christians approach or live out singleness? What does that mean to have a biblical worldview of singleness? We actually discover that what the Bible teaches challenges both the traditional view, but it also challenges the contemporary view as well. It's kind of a third option that it presents. And this is something that Timothy Keller quotes Stanley Hauerwas um, in where Hauerwas looks at history and he says, you know, he's a Christian theologian and philosopher, and he said Christianity is actually unique as a worldview because, quote, it's the very first religion or worldview that to a large degree held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. Notice verse 26. Paul says, Now to the virgins, it's good for a man or woman to remain as they are. It's good. It's not just tolerable. It's good for someone who's unmarried to remain unmarried. You're not going to find that sentence in any other ancient document. And again, like I said last week, we did a bit of a reflection on how challenging that would have been to hear and then begin to appropriate for new Christians. It is good for someone who is single to remain in that state that they are a Christian. Why? Verse 28, Paul is just totally honest. He says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. And there is evidence that Paul himself was a widower. He puts himself in that category at the start of chapter 7. There's a few contextual and historical clues. So while Paul is now unmarried at this point and single, he knows what it is to be married. He knows what it is to be single. And he says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. So maybe this, is, this might be maybe a small comfort, to those of you who are single, but it's important for you to hear it. Marriage isn't just happily ever after. Marriage is not just happily ever after. Marriage is beautiful. It is formative. It is important. It's a gift from God. These are all things that we would affirm about marriage. But marriage is not an easy road. And there are few things that will drain your spirit and weigh down your soul more than an unhealthy, stagnant, strained, difficult marriage. And unfortunately, in my anecdotal experience and in what I read and the surveys that I look to, there are many marriages that fall into that category because many marriages are entered into by people who expect their marriage to work 
without really demanding an enormous amount of maturity and growth and change from themselves. They often demand those things from their partner, but not from themselves. Many marriages never even graduate from good to great. Many marriages, I don't, I don't know how many, but anecdotally I would say more than we might think, uh, the best they ever get is tolerable. And that's sad, but in my experience, it, it can be true. And so Paul is just being honest. Marriage isn't some key that unlocks the good life or the abundant life or this flood of blessing. It has blessings and done well. It can be a source of enormous strength. But Paul says if you're single, you don't, don't chase after marriage as if it's something that is going to be the end-all and be-all in terms of personal fulfillment. He says, more often than not, it can be a real source of challenge and hardship. Notice in verse 32, he says, I want you to be free from concern. Paul says, if you're single, you have such an opportunity ahead of you, and it's not that marriage will inevitably take you down a challenging, difficult road, or even a disastrous road, but it will be a stressful road. It, it just has to be a stressful road. Mar marriage, because of the nature of what it is, even when it's good, will demand an enormous amount of investment. And it will be stressful, because at its best, it will still be friction and iron sharpening iron. And he says, I'd love you to live in a way that's free from that kind of stress. And I think it's telling that Paul says, one of the easiest ways to live a life that's free from concern is to remain unmarried. Now, I know that as I say that, if you're single here, you can say, well, Jeff, it's easy for you to say. You've got a wife, you've got a family, and I see your posts on Instagram, and everyone looks so amazing and so happy, and I look at other people, and they seem happy. I get it. I know it's very difficult to believe that when you're single and unmarried, it's actually better to be single and unmarried than in a strained or difficult or even bad marriage. But it's actually true. Proverbs 21.19 says it very succinctly. It is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. I don't... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had a note here. I wonder if someone's going to call me... Yeah, yeah, that's not obviously gender-inclusive language, but you can pull that in and whatever it looks like in terms of the, the blank-and-a-blank husband. It is better to live in the desert. Desert's a harsh, harsh place. Desert is a lonely place. Desert is a rough place. And Solomon, who had many wives, says it's actually better to be single <laughs> than to be connected with a quarrelsome and nagging wife or a straining and troublesome partner. This is two oxen that are yoked together. Paul is going to talk about not being unequally yoked later on in Corinthians. And he's using that to say, first and foremost, it's very difficult to be in a marriage. He wants to acknowledge that if you're single and you're looking for someone to marry, it should be another person who's a Christian because your core commitments are so... Um, different on one level, that there can be some similarities and overlap of values. That can be okay, but you're kind of pulling in a different direction 
or the direction that one person wants to pull, the other person isn't too excited about. And, you know, what Paul is trying to say is, hey, single people, don't, don't see yourself as the victim of these terrible circumstances and you're sort of condemned to this life of, of, of tragic loneliness and isolation. I think he would point to this picture and say, this is a lot of marriages. This is a lot of marriages. Now, those, these pictures of marriages and relationships aren't the ones that show up on Facebook and Instagram. But this is real life for a lot of people. Amen? Don't put your hand up. I'm just kidding. Right? Marriages, even good ones, even ones that are striving to be healthy, are still really, really difficult. They're filled with a lot of hardships. And so my first observation that I want you to hear and to recognize is that marriage isn't happily ever after. And so this advice here, to not just seek it as if that's the thing that's going to deliver you into fulfillment and fruitfulness and into real adulthood or Christian legitimacy or fulfillment, that's a lie. You do not need to get married as a Christian. And if your compulsion is I actually feel like I do, though. That's a separate negative spiritual issue. You should be able to learn to walk with God, and we'll talk about this in a moment, in a way that makes walking as a single, unmarried person sustainable. Not that you're closing the door for the future, but in the same way that you don't want to go grocery shopping when you're starving, you do not want to be... operating in your singleness from a place of I'm desperate, I'm thirsty, and instead of going and getting that satisfaction in God or with some healthy relationships, I'm going to jump at the first opportunity of the person who says, I love you or you're attractive or what have you. So marriage is not happily ever after, and you literally might lead a more fruitful and fulfilling life as a single person. Number two, Singleness is an opportunity. All hardships you can frame in one of two ways. It's an opportunity or it's a threat. If you view it as a threat, you're going to try and get get away from it as fast as possible. You're going to be desperate and you're often going to make bad relationship choices. You have to understand that singleness is an opportunity. If the encouragement to stay single is the shocking part of this passage for first century traditional ancient people, what do you mean you can have a real fulfilling legitimate life as a single person? No, it's all about family. It's all about building the community. It's what Paul says about singleness for the Christian that is the shocking part of the passage, probably for most people in our culture. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affair, how he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And again, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. Paul doesn't see singleness as some prison that you just have to endure. This is not to restrict you, but so that you may live in a right way, an undevoted Uh, Sorry, undivided devotion to the Lord. See, one of the traps that we don't think about uh, as it relates to marriage is that maybe even a great marriage where a husband and wife are consumed 
with pleasing and being a blessing to each other is that your marriage actually in a weird way can become an idol. And I've met people like this, right? There's a fine line between taking something good and saying we want this to be a part of our, we want a strong, healthy marriage through which we move into the world with strength, bless God and to bless other people. And I've also known people who make their marriage an idol. They invest just an enormous amount of time, energy, and money in ex- into experiences that build their marriage. And obviously, obviously, we're talking about nuance here, but that can take on a shape where it feels like they are very kind of marriage-centric. And Paul says, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Marriage is a gift and it's amazing. But he says, you can get fixated on your spouse. And ironically, even when your marriage is in a really good place or you have a phenomenal spouse, this can be a trap that you can fall into. And Paul is saying, no, you want to always keep your devotion to God first and foremost. But it could be read by some people in our culture as affirming this contemporary view where it's kind of like, yeah, like, don't give up your independence. Don't give up your autonomy. Um, Don't live to please someone else. Don't live to please your spouse. Like, have a good sort of exchange. Have a, you know, semi-flexible transactional, but don't live to please your spouse. And a lot of people even view marriage as ultimately about securing a return on investment for themselves. And so when Paul gets to verse 35 and he says, stay single, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but so that you might live to please blank, what's the blank that a lot of people in our culture would expect Paul maybe to say? Yourself. Right? Stay single because then you can live to please yourself. But that's not how God fills in the blank. He doesn't say, Marriage is for serving your spouse and singleness is for serving yourself. What are both for? Serving God. Full devotion to God. It looks different between a married couple and a family as a single person, but that's the end. That's the goal, to glorify God and enjoy Him, whether married or single. And so there are... um, these advantages, Paul says, it's not a source of shame and limitation to be single. And actually, there are distinct advantages that someone who is single can leverage. That's why he says, like, I'm doing this for your own good. I want you to see the opportunity here, not to feel trapped, but to have an expansive view of what is possible. You have way more margins for focus and flexibility and freedom when you are single than when you are married. And you can use that focus and that flexibility and that freedom to devote and serve God in all kinds of creative and interesting ways in a way that, frankly, when, you have mar- when you're married and when you have a family, you are locked in to certain processes. Your margins do become way, way thinner. What you're doing is good, but don't see singleness as this dead-end road or this stasis where I'm like, well, I guess I'm just kind of Endure this relational purgatory until I go to marriage heaven. Paul's like, no, take advantage 
of this time, whether it lasts a year or 50. Look at the advantages and leverage them, not for your own selfish gain, but in devotion to God. Say, God, my life is yours. And if you're tempted to think, well, yeah, but what can God do? I'm just a single person. No, that's a lie you reject. And say, God says here that in some ways I'm at an advantage to impacting the world for him than those who are married. That's why he says, if you get married, it's not a sin, but you do better to stay single. Now, what does that look like, though? What does it look like to live intentionally and thoughtfully as a single person? Because, again, I know this can sound very sort of high in the sky and vague enough that you're like, okay, how do I leverage my singleness? Because there are longings there. There are, you know, I, I do find myself fantasizing about falling in love or having a family one day or getting remarried. But here I am. How, what does that look like? So I thought what we might do is kind of share a floor and open it up to what counsel would you give to someone who is single? Now, again, we might think of the maybe the stereotypical, you know, 18 to 25-year-old young adult who's single. But again, we can put this wider to anyone, whether they're widowed or divorced, and they're in a season where they're unmarried, what does it look like to leverage that time to the glory of God? What are some specific things, advice or counsel that you would give either to your um, previous single self or to a close friend who was um, hearing this message and saying, uh, okay, but like now what? Like when Monday morning rolls over tomorrow, how do I live? What would be some advice you would give? It could be big stuff, small stuff. Oh, that's a great word. Yeah. Recognize the gift of having extended, unhurried time with God, whether it's a walk, whether it's putting on worship music, playlists, whether it's just soaking in scripture. Those are, in a lot of ways, luxuries that get removed in the margins of um, intense family and uh, married life. Yeah. In a, in a good way, hoard and be jealous of that time with God. Look for ways to grow in your capacity to spend extra time with God right now. What other advice, Lily? So good. Right, right. Again, we can get into this thing where it's like, well, I know when I get married, I'm gonna, like, that's going to be challenging. I'm going to have to grow and be a good husband or wife or whatever. But right now, I'm like, it's going to hit cruise control and yeah, wait for like real life to start. And then I'll get like, it's, it's, it's like the relational equivalent of um, like when you're a teenager, you're like, well, I'll follow God like later in my life. Like when it really matters. And now I'll just kind of like, like I believe in God, but just kind of do my own thing. And we can fall into that trap relationally. Well, I'm single. There's not, I, again, I'm kind of stuck. There's not much I can do. There's no point in doing anything because I don't have the context of a relationship. Well, can I ask you, Lydia, what would be some of those things like when you say, 
working on yourself, what would be examples of things that you would encourage someone? Yeah. Yeah, so good. I had that as one of my things that, um, you know, cultivate a holistic discipleship where your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you're learning to know yourself better, strengths and weaknesses, patterns that start with your family of origin or just ways of showing up in the world. You're like, God, I want you to change that, knowing God more, um, investing in therapy, books, uh, just things that actually strengthen you. Because if you never get remarried again, will that be a waste of time? Will all that effort to grow in your relationship with God, deepen your own self-understanding, show up in a more mature, uh, dynamic way in your own personality and shape, will that investment be a waste of time if you never get married again? No. It'll have massive uh, sh positive shaping effects to all your relationships. And if you do end up being in a relationship, You've now got two, five, ten years of pre-marital counseling work preparation that you get to bring in. And so you're not coming into the relationship. Uh, I guess the metaphor would be you're coming into the relationship with gifts to give, not like, do you have gifts? Because I got nothing. Give me. Give me what you have. Give me. I need you to complete me because I got nothing. What have you been doing all this time? Waiting for you to show up with your sweet gifts? Give me them. Right? No. Awesome. What would be another um, encouragement or challenge that you would say, how do you use your singleness? Jordan? I would definitely say that dovetails with what Lydia said in terms of learning about relationships. And even though it's challenging, because sometimes you just need a lot of experience, first-hand experience to develop that discernment, you can still develop discernment, learning about personality types, learning about people, cultivating a broad network of friends. So that you just begin to read people because a lot of difficult and strained marriages come from I meet someone, I'm attracted to them, I'm infatuated, I paper over all of the negative parts of them that I don't want to see, not, not, get alone that I don't even see it, I don't want to see it. And then we move into this um, um, romanticized view of who they are and what marriage is. And uh, 
you know, unfortunately, a worst case scenario can be you can realize years into your marriage, you actually married someone who was deeply uh, dysfunctional and destructive. And maybe had you been more patient and had you been more discerning, you'd be able to say, this isn't a good person for me to get yoked with. So learning about relationships. Some other things that I uh, put here, those are great reflections. Thank you so much for that. If you're single, um, again, shift the mindset. Instead of seeing it as a prison and as a hold, a waiting room for real life, see it as an opportunity. Even just that shift in your mindset to say, oh, God sees this time as an opportunity for me to grow in all kinds of ways. Take advantage of that, right? If you are going to date, be very selective and date for marriage. Know who you are, what you want, why it's important to you. Make sure that if you are going to yoke yourself to someone, they don't have to be perfect, but you have to be, there has to be a pretty big overlap of alignment in terms of your values. And you might say, oh, well, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm only going to marry a Christian. Christians can have very different priorities of values. So I say to my kids all the time, they're like, oh, dad, I know I should marry a Christian. I'm like, oh, no, don't leave it there. Don't stop there. Because I'm like, there are lots of dysfunctional, narcissistic, uh, deeply broken, self-serving Christians in the world. So you need to understand what does their Christianness mean to them? How are they living it out? Be discerning, right? Um, build and become a better, stronger Christian in person. That's to Lydia's point. And do it holistically. Deepen your relationship with God. Deepen your relationship with self. Work on those things in your social network of friendships. Um, serve God. Look for ways to challenge yourself, especially when you're younger and you're just beginning to learn about yourself. Expend yourself in service of other people. Get more involved in your church. Serve in your community. Uh, connect with people. Put yourself in situations that pull you outside of your comfort zone. Practice chastity and restraint. I I don't, um, I think I need to say it because in our culture, people might be like, well, being single is not too bad. And the reason why they say that is because they're entering into singleness, but not a commitment to chastity. So they're like, well, I'm single, but I'm still hooking up with people. So I'm exercising my sexual um, libido and appetite. And I just want to make sure it's clear that when I'm talking about singleness, part of what the scripture presumes and uh, I am presuming is that you are committed to uh, no sexual engagement uh, with someone. And again, that's, that's challenging. That is, uh, that is a particular kind of burden, maybe especially when we're uh, uh, younger. But um, it's really important to avoid uh, premarital sex. Um, I think there's room and space. Um, and the Penner's book was really good on that. Um, the, the sex book I recommended a few months back on, I think there is space for uh, limited use of self-stimulation, masturbation uh, for someone who's single and they have some good theology and practices around that, um, but can never, it should never be paired with pornography. Uh, so we're talking about um, you know, no pornography, no porneia. What Paul in the New Testament says again and again is sexual immorality. And you might think, oh, Jeff, that's so hard, like it's impossible. But here's the reality. It's important for you, even when the impulse is strongest, to learn delayed gratification and restraint. Because you will need it in marriage just as much as you need it when you're single. And again, that's one of the tricks 
that we can get deluded into thinking. Well, I'm just, I have a high libido. If I just get married, that's going to solve all my problems. And it's like, no, because there are long stretches in relationships sometimes where you will be in a sexless marriage because of illness, uh, physical illness, mental illness, relational strife. About 10% of marriages that are people in their 30, between, you know, the, the data isn't always conclusive. Somewhere between 7 and 10% of marriages in the 30s are sexless. And it goes up from there with every decade. And so you need to be cultivating restraint so that um, you understand that if sex isn't on the table or the kind of sex life that you would like is not on the table, that that doesn't come, become a source of resentment towards your partner about. You want to be cultivating contentment? Thank God for your gift of singleness every day. It might not feel like a gift, but it is. It's an opportunity. And again, do all you can to be godly. Instead of using your singleness to say, oh, this is the time in life where I'm just going to extract as many experiences for myself as possible. It's how do I devote myself fully to God and become the strongest, uh, most dynamic, uh, healthiest, person that I can be so that whether God keeps me single or brings someone along and I choose to go down that road, it's going to be a source of blessing. I know some of you hearing this say, yeah, but Jeff, being single is hard. And again, I've been there. I, I want to acknowledge that. Being single is hard. But I also want to remind you who are single, every path that involves following Jesus is hard. No, nobody has it easy. And I understand that on the near side of marriage, you can say, well, when I look over the fence, that looks a lot easier. But I'm just telling you, Paul says, there's a lot of strife and hardship in marriage. Even with the best marriages. And I want to spare you this. The Christian life often feels like an uphill climb. Whether you're single or married. There's no easy path that just provides a steady stream of easy-won victories and a, a steady supply of ease and comfort and happiness. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, you must take up your cross, and you must follow me. And whether you're taking up your cross as someone who's married or someone who's single, you're still taking up your cross. And I hope that, in one sense, is an encouragement. To say, yes, it's hard. But there's no path of honoring God that's easy. And just a, a little quote, uh, I want you to listen to it. It was on um, Timothy Keller's message on theology of singleness that I put in the Summit newsletter on Friday. But he talked about that singleness is, uh, can be very, very challenging. But he says, the gift when you're single is that you can have more friends. And this was not intuitive to me. And when he said it, I, I mulled it over. And there's a part of me that maybe didn't uh, want to acknowledge it in my own life or to even share it. I think it's true. He said, when you're married, your margins to develop other relationships or to strengthen existing friendships get very thin. But then he said something kind of controversial. He said, often friendships are more satisfying and sanctifying than a married relationship. Not, not always, but often. 
And I know it's hard to believe as a single person. If you had a rich four, eight, 12 person team of awesome friends, that that would somehow compensate for a lack of that one person. But one of the things that you begin to realize as you get older is yes, your, the kind of relationship that you have with your spouse is a friendship and it's important, but a lot of people are suffering because they don't have that next investment of core friendships in their life. And as a single person, that can kind of be one of your superpowers that God can use to really encourage you. Friendships are an amazing gift from God. I have had, God has placed amazing friends in my life, but I am limited in terms of how much time I can spend with them because I'm married and have children. And that's not to resent my marriage or my children. That there are amazing relationships. You, you kind of hear what I'm saying? That again, when you're single, you can think, well, my friends are kind of like placeholders until my one true love shows up. That's how I thought in some ways. So immature, so self-serving. And it's like, no. And you know, and some of you know this. Some of you know those friends have been more faithful to you than your spouse. And they will be with you until you go to your grave when your spouse wasn't. But when you're single, realize, hey, I have an opportunity here to build a new network of strong friendships. Singleness may be a hard road, but not only does God give you friends, God also gives you himself. I hope you understand that when you seek him before anything else and you center on him even imperfectly you're learning how to do it when you learn to draw on his love for you then a lot of singleness does lose its sting there is, is a satisfaction that comes in the soul we are not constantly operating from a sense of lack or deficit you can find in god a satisfaction for your soul that no human source can quench galatians 2 20 says I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the more you learn what it means to make Christ your center and source of love, then whether you are married or single, you understand that my deepest pleasure comes from serving and devoting myself to him and then being a blessing to those around me. And so whether I'm single or married, in the highest sense, doesn't matter. Because both of those relationship statuses, when they're done for the glory of God and for the blessing of my neighbor, actually lead to deep fulfillment and fruitfulness. Let's pray. God, thank you that you can be our source and center. And I know for some people when they hear they're supposed to love you more or make you the love of their life, they, we have this romance. We're not sure what that means. So I just pray by your spirit that you would, um, for those who are hungry for that, who know they want to draw upon your love, I pray that you would bring the right people and resources uh, into their life so that they can begin to walk with you and have some of those longings, those longings of the soul, to be satisfied in you so that whether married or single, they can feel like they're going into their core relationships and their calling with strength 
and their founding, their foundation, their, uh, their grounding is in you. Help us understand what that means and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.